This episode of the Skift podcast features a discussion from a recent online Skift event. To join us and learn more about future Skift events, visit live.skift.com. Please welcome the CEO of Marriott International, Anthony Capuano, in conversation with Skift hospitality reporter Cameron Spirits. Well, and maybe before we start, let me thank Skift. It's, um, it is so important for our industry uh, to make the commitment to hold in-person events. It's terrific that everybody's here, um, and uh, it's just a great signal we're sending to the traveling public. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let me just add one more thank you, too. It's um, obviously it's our collective responsibility to drive and inspire traveler confidence. So I want to thank, thank Tyler and the rest of the TWA staff. They've done a terrific job here today uh, running a, a well-organized, safe meeting. So thanks to the TWA team as well. So shall we dive right in? Sure. We're meeting at a pretty interesting time. Um, Delta variant pushing back the return of the office like some of us thought was going to happen sooner than where it's where it's transpiring. Um, you were in the news yesterday, quoted as saying you're seeing conferences, trade shows push back a little bit into the end of the year, into next. But we also got some good news this week with the U.S. reopening, or announcing plans to reopen international borders to vaccinated travelers. Um, how do you package all of that in your, your recovery outlook for the rest of the year into next? So let me start with the announcement about the borders. Uh, as you and I discussed, I just came back from two weeks traveling through five cities in Europe. Uh, the ease of traveler as a, as a US visitor with my passport and my handwritten CDC card was terrific. Uh, but as I met with our owners and our customers and our partners across Europe, um, they, were, they were frustrated, but they were more puzzled. Because as I'm sure you know, in Europe, uh, they've got a digitized, comprehensive health credential called the Green Pass. And it was just curious to them that they couldn't cross U.S. borders with this digitized uh, health credential, yet they trusted that U.S. travelers were not uh, counterfeiting these, uh, these handwritten cards. Uh, so as I met with our customers, I mentioned that I have the good fortune later this week to meet with the Secretary of Commerce. That was going to be one of the, the topics at the, the top of our agenda. I may claim that we already had the meeting and it was that meeting that led to the change, but it's great news for the business. I mean, what was clear is I was in two cities in Germany, three in, in Italy, and European travelers are clamoring to get back on the road, just like travelers from around the world, and they are anxious to visit the US. Uh, in terms of Delta variant, if you look at our data, I suppose one of the great things about our industry, we have real-time information because we're looking at the booking patterns on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we saw really strong month-over-month -month improvement through May, June, July. We saw little retrenchment in August, a few points, uh, that I think fairly probably is related either directly or indirectly to the Delta variant. But just through the first two weeks of September, we've seen fairly strong stabilization. And I think China is maybe another good example of this. We saw terrific volumes across all three demand segments in China. 
Then you saw a few outbreaks. There were about 150 cities in mainland China that were uh, locked down until they got containment. We saw occupancy drop, but then immediately recover. Mm -hmm. And so I think our, our broad view about uh, recovery remains optimistic, uh, but it won't be like a conventional recession where five years from now we can look back and see a smooth, steady recovery curve. It'll be much more choppy because of the unpredictability of the virus. Understood. I do want to shift gears into the theme of our conversation, which is growth. And since July, I believe, I've noticed that Marriott leadership has talked about the mergers and acquisitions climate for the greater hotel industry, but also Marriott as well. And talking about how a deal like your Starwood acquisition um, is unlikely, but smaller one-offs, bolt-on acquisitions for places where you see that there are, there are holes to fill, that might be the future of M&A for y'all. Um, Marriott's approaching, what, 8,000 hotels? Mm -hmm. So uh, in a network like that, where, where do you have holes to fill? Well, fairly, the, the Starwood acquisition get, dominates the press, and it should given its, its scale and its impact. But if you look at the five years prior to that acquisition, we had a fairly steady cadence of what we internally termed bolt-on acquisitions. And whether that was Gaylord Hotels, Protea Hotels, Delta, AC, and all of those had similar DNA. In some cases, they represented a platform that we thought had regional or even global growth implications. And in some cases, they helped us achieve geographic footprint in a market where, candidly, we had struggled mightily to grow organically. So Protea might be the best example of that. Prior to that acquisition, we didn't have a single operating hotel in sub-Saharan Africa. With the stroke of a $200 million check, we became the largest hotel company on the continent. And so I do think that's been a strategy that's worked well for us. Um, one of the benefits of our, our footprint and our scale, we don't feel any urgency to do an M&A deal to gain scale. Mm -hmm. But I think we'll look at opportunities as they present themselves. But if we consider doing a deal, it'll likely share the DNA of the transactions we've done before. We may view it as an opportunity to bolster the portfolio and give us a new growth platform. Or we may look at some geography around the world and say we're dissatisfied with the breadth of our footprint, and M&A might be the quickest way to achieve our, our objectives. Great. I think. In, whether it's us or our competitors, I do think you will likely see an acceleration in deal volume. And I think there's a variety of reasons, scale obviously, but I think the investment required in technology infrastructure and the complexity and investment required for loyalty programs will likely be catalysts for more consolidation. That deal volume though, I mean, I feel like a lot of people expected like a crashing wave of that, like months ago hasn't really happened. You've, you've seen, admittedly, like, a, a couple of big deals announced, but I mean, like, when are we going to see that crashing wave? I don't know that it'll be a crash, and I say that for a few reasons. Number one, the lending community in hospitality has been flexible, they've been creative, and they've been pragmatic. So you've not necessarily seen the distress that many had predicted in the early days of the pandemic. I think secondly, now that we're somewhere along the recovery curve, you've still got a bit of a gap between buyers and sellers. Sellers say the recovery is progressing. Why would I sell now? Let me ride the recovery curve a little further. And then you've got buyers that say, I'd love to do a deal if I can get a deeply discounted price. And I think that gap between the bid and the ask has, has moderated deal flow a little bit. Got it. 
One other area where I notice uh, on earnings calls you'll talk a lot about growth are um, conversions, mm -hmm. soft brands, things like that. Are, are there parts of the world in, in your network where that type of growth works best relative to, to new build in your hard brands? Well, I think it works well everywhere. If you look over a couple decades of Marriott's growth trajectory, it is a bit counter-cyclical. Um, when the markets start to soften a little bit, we tend to see our conversion volume ramp up. Mm -hmm. Some of that is because of the realities of the availability of debt for new construction. Some of it is because owners of independent hotels or branded hotels where the owner is not certain that they've optimized their branding strategy. On the precipice of a downturn, they say, even if it's a risk mitigation factor, I want to align with a stronger set of revenue engines, a stronger loyalty program. Uh, there are markets like many of the Asian markets, the Middle East markets, where the growth tends to be dominated by new construction. But even in those markets, particularly, as you pointed out, because of the stack of soft brands that we offer, we are seeing an acceleration in conversion activity. Understood. So uh, along with growth, I, I feel like with the hotel industry's growth trajectory, sustainability sometimes is... is put to the side, but we are sharing New York City this week with the UN General Assembly. Climate change is expected to be a big topic. Um, I, I hear you have some sustainability news of your own that you're ready to announce today. We do, and, and we're really excited about it. As you know, we've been on a sustainability journey for years, uh, but we are making an announcement today that I think is a quantum leap forward in terms of our efforts. Uh, we've submitted a letter to the, the um, science-based uh, target initiative, and we've made two commitments on behalf of the company. We've made a commitment to reduce our emissions and set targets for that across our portfolio and our supply chain. And then maybe more impactfully, we've agreed to set targets to reach a net zero emissions target by no later than 2050. And uh, it's something we're enormously proud of. It, we're very passionate. And I think it really dovetails well with one of the company's core values, which is to serve our world. Wonderful. And I, I mean, it, it, it's interesting because fantastic announcement. There's a lot of pushback when companies do announce net zero pledges because there's not necessarily an overarching regulatory body defining what that means. So, I mean, if we're going to track Marriott over the next couple of decades, I mean, what is your accountability metric? How are we going to be able to tell that you're, you're inching towards that goal, leaping towards that goal, hopefully? Well, as, as part of this announcement, we've aligned with the UN's Race to Zero initiative, mm -hmm. and I think they will continue to evolve metrics, uh, which will inform our progress. Great. Right. Um, the other thing, too, I mean, with your planned growth, I, I was listening to uh, Marriott's chief financial officer, Lenny Oberg, last week mm -hmm. at the uh, J.P. Morgan conference talking about the push for probably more new build in China. How do you accommodate that? New build construction is obviously pretty energy intensive with this plan to go um, net zero. It's a great question. I mean, we've made the announcement, which is the easiest part of, of this work. Now the real work starts. The good news, I think, I think most of the folks in the room know our business model. We're approaching 8,000 hotels. We own less than 20. I'd be happy to sell you any of those 20. <laughs> but um, as, a, as a result of that model, deep engagement and transparent communication with the owner and franchise community is critical. And just uh, last week, we spent two days with 130 of our most significant franchise partners here in the U.S. and Canada, and I participated in four distinct executive forums with that group. 
This was the first topic that came up in each of those executive forums. So we've got a group of partners globally that are passionate, not just about talking about sustainability, but evolving our business model in a way that will allow us to achieve these, these ambitious goals. And so to your specific point, as we're talking to our partners about new construction, we're going to be looking at sustainable materials, we're going to be looking at new building methods, we're going to be looking at energy efficiency, all of the elements of new construction to help us move towards that net zero goal. When do you think, I mean, if I'm a hotel owner in your network, I mean, when should they start to expect to, to see expectations that they adhere to this? Well, the, the, again, the good news is they won't wake up this morning and say, oh my goodness, we need to be aware of sustainability. In many ways, one of the wonderful things about this symbiotic relationship we have with our owners, they're pushing us. Mm -hmm. So many of them are actually a bit ahead of us. They are deeply engaged. They want to leverage our resources to learn how they can help accelerate this goal. So it will be like any initiative, very collaborative with those owners. How important is government buy-in to something like this? I mean, I, I know in certain parts of, of the world and even in the U.S. there are more incentives to retrofit older HVAC systems, et cetera. So I mean, like, how are those discussions going and, and how big of a piece is that? Again, it's early. Uh, support from local governments around the world is obviously of tremendous value. Um, but what we really see, I, I've been asked repeatedly, why now, right? You're in the midst of, of recovery from the biggest crisis the company and the industry has ever faced. And, and my answer is two-pronged. Number one, as, as human beings, I think it's our responsibility. But when you think about our business model, we really, we answer to four distinct constituents. Our associates, our guests, our owners, and our investors. Each of those groups has a rapidly um, growing urgency around sustainability. And so government support is terrific. Even if there were no government support, uh, our associates and prospective associates are asking questions. Do I want to work for this company? Is this company, are these companies' values aligned with mine? Our guests, particularly group meeting planners, they are asking for our Serve 360 report, which outlines our progress in, in areas of ESG before they make their booking decisions. As I mentioned earlier, our owners are keenly focused in this area. And our institutional investors, similarly, they don't want flowery language about our care for the planet. They want to see demonstrated progress to reach these goals. And so I think it's the, it's the demands and the, the, the passion of those four constituencies that help drive our decision to make these commitments. And for those of us who are a little impatient, why, why 2050? Why can't it be sooner? Well, I was very, you're channeling Bill Marriott, who says, why not sooner? Uh, I would say to you that uh, my words were deliberate, 2050 at the latest. Um, we will, from today forward, try to reach that lofty goal as quickly as we can. Uh, there is so much work to do. We want to make sure we don't disappoint, um, but we will try to get there as quickly as we can. And we'll be here following along in the uh, I know pages you of gift. <laughs> I imagine a quarterly report card. Of course, if not more. Um, so I, I did want to bridge that into, I know we touched upon a little bit, brand standards. Um, 
hot button issue on a good day, and let alone a pandemic. I, I know a lot of companies like Marriott relax them um, to give owners a, a bit of a financial life raft. Um, but the expectation is those are coming back in some form or fashion with accountability next year. Um, how are you going to balance that with with this? And I, I mean, like. Is, an interview that came to mind is uh, former Starwood CEO Barry Sternlicht was at the Saudi Arabian Hospitality Summit last mm -hmm. fall and uh, labeled brand standards as akin to throwing money in the ocean when it comes to return on investment. So, and that's one of the more polite things I've heard about brand standards. Mm -hmm. So how do you win over those people with, with this? And I'll respectfully pass on commenting on that quote, but I think <laughs> that um, our customers have a set of expectations. Um, brand standards are one of the, the tools we have available as a global brand company with 30 brands to, to reach our aspiration of, of meeting those expectations. Uh, as we recover from the pandemic, the thing I can tell you, and, and as I said, we spent a lot of time with our owners uh, last week, uh, there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to when and how we evolve brand standards and return to brand standards. Uh, our expectations for a luxury hotel in the southeast where demand is roaring will likely be very different than our expectations for a select service hotel in a city center location where the demand curve is much flatter. Um, the, the return to accountability uh, was not done in a vacuum. It was done, in, again, in consultation with our owners and franchisees who, quite interestingly, again, pushed us. And they said, we want you to have a little flexibility, but we've got to start those measurements again. Because the great news for our industry is in many of these markets, pricing power has come roaring back. But with the ability to drive rate is heightened expectations from our guests and brand standards are one of the levers we have to ensure we're meeting that value proposition for our guests. When you're having these conversations, what struck me at a uh, hotel conference over the summer is I was asking a couple of people, um, forgive me if I asked you this too, of what's the brand standard that's getting considered that's keeping you up at night? And I just assumed it was going to be housekeeping, but pretty much uniformly it was breakfast. Um, what, what's the brand standard topic of conversation that's keeping the Marriott team up at night right now? Uh, there's a lot keeping me up. I don't know that it's brand standards, but I will say in these two days I spent with our uh, 130 of our partners, uh, housekeeping was probably the most hotly debated topic. Uh, again, uh, there is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, you've got guests at both ends of the spectrum. You've got guests that are still dipping their toe into travel and are quite concerned about having somebody come into their room. We've inspired confidence by the level of cleanliness that, that we've implemented, but they're nervous about somebody entering. At the other end of the spectrum, I got an email from a guest the other day. He was a lifetime titanium. He said, I, I love your company. I love your brands. I understand what the pandemic has done to you, and I've got a lot of empathy about building back your services. He said, I only have one request. He said, at home, my wife only lets me have one towel a week. So please bring back housekeeping so I can use all my towels like I do every day. So, I mean, there's this wide spectrum of guest expectations. And we've got to temper that with quality tier and the realities of demand recovery market by market. Got it. Got it. I want to go back to one growth question that I, uh, I meant to ask at the top. Sure. And relating to the new build nature of 
China versus the U.S. Um, to bring up Lini again, I, I thought it was interesting that she was saying there's kind of this expectation because lending is so tight in the U.S., you're not going to see as much um, new build here, also given y'all's market share. Um, and there might be a shift to Asia, particularly in China, because that lending constraint isn't as much of a thing there. Can you maybe elaborate on, on how it's still going to be possible there, not here? Well, most of the hotels that we have, we've got round numbers, about 400 hotels in China, another 400 in the pipeline behind those. The vast majority are directly or indirectly owned by a state-owned enterprise. And so, in effect, they are self-financing. So concerns about the availability of con uh, conventional construction debt are less relevant there th than they are in some of the Western markets. Um, in the U.S., we are seeing a, a slow opening of the debt markets. Uh, they care deeply about brand. They care deeply about sponsorship. And much of it is relationship-related lending. I think those all apply in Europe as well. Middle East, again, because of the volume of, of sovereign fund ownership, the availability of conventional debt is less relevant. Got it. Have you for one last minute? I, I did want sure. to touch upon um, Marriott, such a legacy company. You came into the CEO role this year following the death of the late Arnie Sorensen. Um, do you mind just closing with some lessons you have picked up from, from your predecessors and, and the Marriott family even in, in taking, coming into this role at it, it, such a crucial time for the industry? Well, I think we'll need more than a minute, but I'll try. Um, obviously, I've had the privilege of working with Bill Marriott for more than a quarter of a century. Uh, I think particularly as we face this crisis, his steady hand, his deep experience navigating crisis, crises has been invaluable for the entirety of the leadership team. Um, I worked closely with Arnie for 20 years. Uh, it is still difficult for all of us to compartmentalize the emotion about his unexpected passing. Uh, but many in this room knew him well, and you knew that sort of stoic, Nordic way that he approached things. And his advice to me would have been, wipe those silly tears away and get to work. There's a lot of folks relying on you. And that's what the entirety of the team has tried to do. Uh, I think maybe the two lessons I learned most clearly from him were that it is critically important to be communicative and transparent in that communication. Many of you saw the video he did for our associates in the early days of the pandemic, and I think that sets a, a wonderful example for how we should be communicating. Uh, and then I think his, his ability to listen. Uh, you speak to people around the world who maybe only had the chance to ever meet Arnie once, and they came away thinking they had a real relationship, and the reason they did that is he was an extraordinary listener. He engaged, he really listened to what the, the other person had to say, and I, I think that's the other really valuable lesson I take from my couple decades watching him. Lessons for us all. For sure. Tony, thank you so much. My for absolute us. pleasure. Thanks for Thanks having me. Thanks so much. Me. Appreciate okay. it.